grace be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are in the fourth week of a series on prayer, which is titled Prayer 2.0. The idea being that uh, with upgrades, if you're used to technology, sometimes uh, you don't have a hardware device that, that can take an upgrade, so you have to fully get, buy a new product, um, and that's not what prayer is like. And sometimes your products tell you you absolutely have to get this update, and in five minutes it's happening no matter what you're about to do. Uh, and maybe, sadly, that's not what our spiritual life is like. Um, uh, it requires that optional decision uh, to take that update, to try to further our spiritual um, journey with God. And so we've been talking about different kinds of prayers. Last week we talked about prayer walking, and we looked at the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah walking through the city of Jerusalem with his plans and his hopes and his dreams for what God might do in Jerusalem. Uh, our, our first week we did kind of a sacred reading, which was uh, the formal language was Lectio Divina, uh, but how to read scripture uh, looking for what is shimmering in the text that God might be calling you into prayer about and thinking about your experiences and emotions that that text brings out. And we also did another week on writing prayers um, or drawing them. But the idea that the text said to write down your prayer, even though it was in a time that most people were illiterate and not everybody could read and write, um, but there was a value in writing your prayers. And that brings us to today which is about reciting prayers. And that's not actually something that everybody is fully on board with. There's a segment of people that will look at reciting prayers and say, I don't know about that. Um, you know, it, some people value spontaneity over something that's written out. And they say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit should give you what to say and you don't need to think about it ahead of time. God's just going to speak through you. Uh, some people think that that kind of spontaneity is more important. Um, some people are suspicious that uh, reading written prayers is, is not as heartfelt, that it's impersonal. Um, and that kind of suspicion lurks in some of the Christian tradition. And I think it's not actually just about prayers, uh, because I can just tell you that naturally, if I were to, to read my sermon word for word here, if I read my sermon word for word here, you naturally have a reaction to that. And you, you sometimes don't recognize that it's happening, but for whatever reason, when someone is reading, we just feel like, well, is that actually from them? Like, do they really believe this or not? Whereas we naturally trust someone just speaking, you know, from the heart uh, in a different kind of way. So I could say the exact same things up here in a sermon. Uh, but you might experience them differently based on whether you think I'm just reading word for word or I'm not. Um, and we see this in other spheres. Think about reading the news on newscasters or late night talk show hosts or politicians. They all have the wonderful joy of technology in which they can talk to you, the camera, with a teleprompter device, giving them a nice big letters uh, everything that they need to say. So it looks like I'm talking to you even though I'm just reading to you. Um, but not everybody has that luxury of that kind of technology in that situation, but um, that's one way that people try to alleviate this kind of natural response that people have. 
But I still want us to think about this, and the way, even though we feel this, maybe sometimes feel this naturally, what value does it have for us to recite prayers? And as a community, like to bring that home, we say the Lord's Prayer every single week. Like, what value is there in saying the same prayer over and over and over again? And so we're going to talk about reciting prayers today, and we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, which has two parables back-to-back that I think can speak to um, the importance of reciting prayers. The first thing I want to say today is that reciting prayers fosters persistence. Uh, it, It fosters persistence because it's naturally repetitious. If I'm reading a prayer, the prayer has at least been done twice. Someone wrote the prayer, someone's reading the prayer. So it's, all, it's a repetitious practice. And repetition is meaningful and is beneficial. Uh, and Luke here, I think, tells us that it strengthens our resolve. Luke 18 begins, Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. Not to lose heart, because that's the easy thing. Like he needs to tell them about prayer because it's easy to lose heart. So if your problems are outlasting your prayers, then your faith didn't finish that race. Not the big race, not the ultimate faith race, but in that problem scenario, if the problems outlast your your prayers, the problems won that race. If your problems are outlasting your prayers, maybe you've lost heart. There's a value to repeating prayers, to continually going to God with your heart's desires and with your prayers. And so uh, I, I think that reciting prayers helps us to see that prayer isn't just about praying something once and moving on. Let's take this as an example. Hey God, I really want you to make me more humble. Yes, I've done it. Uh, I'm, I'm more humble now. Like, that was easy. Uh, that's not how it works, right? Like, you, you ask for one thing, and it's not just suddenly over. Uh, we have to keep asking. We keep asking, and that changes our own perspective. And so, in our text, Luke gives us an example of someone who keeps repeating their pleas. Um, and I think that one of the things I want you to catch as we read this text is that the repetition isn't just so self-focused. It's justice-oriented which relates to us, but is more than just us. Jesus said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. Now, you couldn't have set up a bigger contrast for power dynamics. On the one hand is this woman who's widowed and has, in a patriarchal society, doesn't have a man to represent her in that court system, which would have helped her in that time. Uh, She has had some injustice done to her. We don't get what that is, which I think is is intentional so that we can imagine a whole wide variety of types of injustices. And she finds herself showing up at the mercy of the judge, uh, a male leading figure in that society who has some sway. It says that that judge uh, didn't have, uh, what's the language here of this text? It didn't have any fear of God or respect for people. 
You can take that in a few ways. Um, either he doesn't care at all about people and that just like he's nonchalant, he, he's self-interested, he doesn't care about people. Or he's not able to be bribed. Like he's going to make his decision. He doesn't care about what anybody else thinks. He has a steadfast ability to, to make judgments and rulings. Either way, that's a position of privilege that he doesn't think he has to rely on anybody else. Whereas this woman is showing up every day having to rely on the mercy of somebody else. And so she keeps coming to him. And she probably lacks the funds to do kind of maybe the little bribe money under the table that was probably a regular practice that, hey, I need a ruling on this. Can you help me out? But what she was lacking from society's standpoint, she wasn't lacking in persistence. She had something of virtue, of value that God saw in her in this parable. And so she keeps coming, and she keeps saying, grant me justice. And it would have been enough to voice what she wanted just to come once. I mean, she made her case. Oh, well, nothing happened. Well, it's time to move on. But she keeps coming, and she keeps coming, and she keeps coming. And sometimes we see that in our own society, in our own news stories. People who have suffered injustices, who've lost their children when they shouldn't have, um, have to be grieving in the way that they're grieving. Uh, senseless violence, in which those parents then take on that mission to let this never happen again. Why aren't we doing more to stop this? Why can't we help protect our kids? When you see that resolve in those parents' lives, that's the kind of persistence of keeping on coming and saying, I need justice. Grant me justice. Grant me justice. It's not enough just to say it once because it's deeply felt. And so it says in the text that for a while the judge refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice, so that she may not wear me out by continually coming to me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? And so the parable is saying, God is not like the unjust judge. It's saying God is greater than the unjust judge. Even the unjust judge who doesn't care, after a while is going to break down and say, leave me alone, fine. I'll give it to you. Uh, but the idea is that God is greater than that and that God cares for creation and cares for society. But the principle is still to be persistent in prayer, to keep coming, to keep asking for justice, and that once isn't enough. And I want to note that the text is kind of focused on how God is going to respond and how others respond, but it's also true of ourselves. The more you keep coming to prayer about something, the more you are changing about something. And so that brings me to our second point about why reciting prayer can be so meaningful. Reciting, especially model prayers, helps shape our spiritual journey. Like it gives vocabulary, it gives meaning to our faith journey, and it ends up shaping ourselves. So what you pray will end up shaping how you see everyday life. There's a critique that people often give at Christians, which you've probably heard. Oh, they're just hypocrites. You heard that. Um, 
And, and there's a possible valid part to this. Uh, when we say we're about love and we're not living it, when we say we're about justice and we're not living it, it's valid to critique us and to say you're not living up to what you want to be. Um, but I think that part of the difference and part of the disconnect is we shouldn't say we're already fully those things. Those are things we are trying to live towards. Those are ideals we're trying to grow to and that we are being called to without saying that, yeah, we're perfect at it right now. And the origin of the word hypocrite was from Greek stage theater. You'd put on a mask, and the mask was called the word hypocrite. So you'd put on the mask, you'd play the part, and you could take your mask off. But there's something to the idea of, like earlier I kind of threw out the joking reference about just praying once for, for being humble and then moving on. But there's something to, if I prayed every single day, Lord, I just feel my pride. Please help me be humble. And every single day you're praying that same prayer, each day that you keep putting that mask on, the idea is that you're shaping your character and self towards that, and that God is at work in you to move you in that direction. So uh, there's something fruitful and continually to, to voice something that we hope to be the case in the world and we hope to be the case in us. And and just like we don't, we don't always know what's in our own hearts, and when that's part of prayer is figuring out where am I at? God helps show me what I need to work on. We also don't know what's in other people's hearts. And that's part of what's the challenge of calling people hypocrites is, is you're saying you know what's inside of themselves and not just the mask. And so Jesus tells us another parable. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now a Pharisee, they get a lot of bad rap in church environments, um, and so we kind of lose the power of most of those parables in that uh, they were the person that the audience clearly was on the side of, that they're the people living for God, they're the people who are are praying, who are reading scripture, who are trying to live rightly. They're rejecting this kind of uh, living like the Greeks and the Romans. They're, they're trying to be pure. And, and some of the texts push back on them is, is because they were so close in the faith together. Like, you fight most with those that you're close to. So they were closer to the faith of the Christian tradition. Uh, and so they're always kind of butting heads in the stories. But here's this Pharisee who's fasting twice a week, who's praying uh, regularly, who's living this kind of faithful life. And he gets to the temple and he's going to pray and everybody looks at that guy and says, that guy's got it. I want to be like that guy. Like they have their life together. They're They're the model religious person. You know, they're that person that you see and you're like, oh, I wish, I wish I could be like them. And that person gets there. And there's another person who shows up that day at the temple. And that's the tax collector. And it might be more appropriate to call them the toll collector um, based on the way in which they're trying to collect taxes. It's not like our system. But what it would be is normally when you're trying to bid for contracts, you're going to go with whoever gives the lowest bid. Well, in this taxing situation, it's kind of flipped. The government says, tell me how much money you can get from your people. And so all these different contracting people are saying, you know, I can get, 
I can get a million dollars. I can get three million dollars. I can get five. And so finally, and you got to make sure you hit your quota if you get the bid. Um, and so you can imagine everyday people are not happy with these people. They're like, why are you taxing us so much? Why are you putting such a burden on us? Why are you so, you know, they're the crooked people. They're the people that are just, uh, you know, go, they're traitorous. They're, they're caring about the Roman government instead of us. So they were the scum in the minds of society, of society who were thieves in their minds. You're taking our money. And so here's the guy that nobody wants to be like. And they both show up at the temple. And what's great about the parable, I think, is also that they are both fully self-aware of what everybody else thinks about them. And it has different effects. Right? The Pharisee shows up, and he knows what everybody thinks. And he's standing by himself, praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. The thieves, the rogues, the adulterers, or even this tax collector. He knows people think of him as, you're what we want to be. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm so glad I'm not those other people too. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those other people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off, doesn't want to get too close to people, maybe just made it inside the temple and he's on this kind of the fringe and doesn't, doesn't feel worthy to be there. He won't even look up to heaven. He's feeling guilty and ashamed of himself. He won't look up to heaven. And he, he's hitting his chest. And he's just saying, you know, and he's not looking up, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's all he's doing. There's no eloquence to it. There's no long-windedness. He's, he's recognizing that his life isn't what it should be. And he's just asking for mercy even without being able to look up. And strangely, to the people imagined in this kind of scene, if you could picture who 2,000 years of Christians would try to model prayer after, you would expect it's the Pharisee, it's the guy that's, that's got this perfect life, who's living righteously, all of this stuff. But yet, history has 2,000 years of people praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you'd even have monks in monasteries working with their hands, maybe they're weaving baskets, whatever they're doing, and they're just kind of meditating on a prayer, and they're just saying these short prayers over and over. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And something about saying that over and over again creates a heart that doesn't allow you to look out at other people in the room and say, God, thank you that I'm not those people. I need mercy. I recognize everyone needs mercy, and I'm going to be merciful to those around me. And that moves us to, I think, the text's kind of final push of why reciting prayers are, are so meaningful. They're an exercise in humility. Because it recognizes that, like, I don't have the perfect theological vocabulary. I don't have the perfect articulation of how to talk to God. Maybe there are other people 
who have prayed prayers, who have gone on this journey ahead of me that I can learn from, that I can use as spiritual guides on this journey to God. And they have a prayer, they have something to offer. Luke ended the parables with saying, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. If even that Pharisee has that risk of showing up, feeling kind of puffed up, being so grateful and so, uh, so hopeful about himself instead of uh, being humble, like that's who we are most likely to follow in the footsteps of. Like that's why the parables are so hard is we want to recognize that we're the tax collector, but we're probably more inclined to be the Pharisee. Like if we're honest, that's where we're more naturally dis- you know, we have that natural tendency to. So we, we can think, you know, well, I, I showed up at church and I gave this tithe and, you know, I never did this sin or that sin. God, thank, thank you that I'm not like those other people. And something about reciting others' prayers reminds us that we're not as great, we're not as lofty, we're not as self-important that we can learn from other people and we can be reminded of that. And so in the vast sea of the faithful, there's much we can learn from that community who's gone before us. And so uh, I hope that we can all admit that we are walking a path that's already been tread by many others and that they have some sort of expressions, some, some prayers that might also be meaningful for us as well. And I wanted to, to kind of conclude with a noting about the Lord's Prayer. I mentioned that earlier, like, why do we recite the Lord's Prayer every single week? Like, what benefit is there in reciting something over and over and over? Notice all the ways in which we are minimized and God is exalted in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Matthew starts, in, pray then in this way, our Father, not our child, God, as father, as, as parent, as, as one who raises you, who teaches you, who protects you, who comforts you. Our Father in heaven, above, holy, hallowed, be your name. We often try to make a name for ourselves, what our accomplishments are, what we can do. Set apart, holy is your name. Let you be the one that gets the praise. Your kingdom come. We often have our own political aspirations and what we think of what we want to happen. Um, but how does God shape how society uh, should be just and loving? God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. The kind of famous thinking about in Gethsemane, not my, you know, please let this cup pass for me, but let your will be done. In a community environment especially, you start vying, like, I'd, like, I'd love this to happen, I'd love that to happen, all kind of have your own agendas, but God, it's your will. Let your will be done. On earth as it is already in heaven. As you pray that prayer, you're reminded of where we stand in the cosmos. The more we pray the Lord's Prayer, the more we're reminded of where we stand with others around us as well. 
We recognize our position in the world and how our relationship to God is also connected to our relationship with others. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. That we're in this together. And as we're in this together, we learn from each other, uh, both in how we live, but also in how we pray. And so, I hope that we all recognize that reciting prayers can be an important part of our faith journey. Reciting prayers fosters persistence and perseverance as we keep saying, God, let there be justice. Reciting prayers shapes our inner heart and our spiritual journey as we keep praying that thing that we want to be, as we keep praying that thing that we hope God transforms us into. Reciting prayers humbles us, helping us to see how we are connected with our fellow travelers on this faith journey. So if you're looking for a place to start on that journey, uh, one thing that you've, uh, we've given is in the bulletin, there's a little handout, and we'll talk about this in our prayer experience in a little while. Um, but there's just some sample scripture texts that have um, some prayers that you could start from. But I'd also encourage you to explore the many, many authors, uh, the, the women and men in the church history who have uh, deep spiritual prayer lives that have much to offer us and that we, could, we can learn from. And so that being said, would you join me in prayer again? Lord, as always, we ask that the words of all of our mouths be pleasing in your sight, that the meditations of all of our hearts would also be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, amen. Everyone can be seated. <clears throat> so, for our prayer experience this week, um, you've got a blue handout with some examples of some Bible verses for reciting prayer. Uh, I'll probably just, I'm going to read through um, these verses so we all hear the different kinds of uh, prayers that are there. But what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few minutes where all you're being asked to do is just to keep praying one of those verses. So just let that one verse sit with you. And before we close, I'll kind of draw our attention to turning from just that one prayer to saying whatever you want to God um, that, that you encounter, that you experience, that you want to voice after praying that prayer um, many times. So, uh, you can repeat it as, as frequently or as infrequently as it, as it takes just to meditate on one of those prayers. So here are the prayers. The one from today, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Psalm 1914, let the words of my mouth, which is what I did before and after the sermon, the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise, Jeremiah 17. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Tell the people what things He has done. Psalm 105. Luke 5, it's a, it's a part of the story when Simon Peter responds to Jesus, he says, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. 
It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Deuteronomy 31. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 27. And lastly, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level path. Psalm 143. So I invite you to pick whichever one of those stands out to you. And to just keep letting that verse be your prayer, and then I'll, I'll note when we kind of move to kind of closing that out and talking to God about what, what you have on your heart because of that.